It was a very bright, shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to a Wednesday edition of the show. We're a couple of days away from the women's NCAA tournament starting. Uh, the women have made the tournament. They are a five seed. They are heading to Knoxville, Tennessee to take on 12 seed Ohio Valley champions Belmont. Um it's the fifth consecutive NCAA tournament bid for the women's program, uh, 17th in school history. And so we figured we need to discuss this. We need to get you up to speed just on what Oregon faces this week uh, in, in Tennessee. Uh, they are in the Tennessee Volunteers pod, uh, and, and they're playing a, a team that's probably – I don't know, Eric, is it is it fair to say that Beaumont is expecting an upset, but they definitely maybe – feel like it's possible well they're in that 5-12 matchup which is always kind of the hot pick for an upset and they did pull an upset a year ago against Gonzaga a school that I'm quite familiar with that Kelly Graves is quite familiar with so there's like a little bit of a tie-in there that was Belmont's first NCAA tournament win ever um but yeah the Bruins have been in six consecutive NCAA tournaments in kind of that same 11 to 13 range every year um, Bart Brooks has been the coach for the last four. He's, I think, won the conference coach of the year twice in the Ohio, in Ohio Valley, which makes sense considering they're in the tournament every year, so the best team every season. Um, so, yeah, this is a program that's definitely hungry. This is a program that has proven they can compete. Um, they had five non-conference losses this year, forwarded teams in the field. Um, I thought that was kind of notable, kind of looking at their season at a glance. Um, you know, they – Lost to Louisville, who, by the way, would be Oregon. If Oregon were to win both games down in Knoxville, that would more than likely be who they'd face in a Sweet 16 matchup in Wichita. Louisville is the one seed there. Um, they also lost to Central Florida, who's a seven seed. Georgia Tech, who's a nine seed. Arkansas, who's a 10, 10 seed. Um, and then Auburn, who didn't make the tournament, wasn't very good this year. But all five of their non-league losses were to teams that are tournament caliber or in major conferences. So... This is not a walkover program, and it's one that won its last 12 games in the regular season. So while Oregon's kind of been kind of, I don't know, up and down, Belmont has been kind of on the rise to finish its season. They've been super consistent, obviously, as Eric just mentioned, winning you know 12 straight games heading into the tournament. Or, well, 10 and heading into the tournament, two in the tournament to win. Um, it's a it's it's definitely not a rollover team. Um, I think in the 12-5 matchup for a reason. Uh, just because this could be an upset, this could be a, definitely Belmont's going to try to be an upset bid. Um, they're you know twenty two and seven on the year. They're an interesting team nonetheless. They will uh, really guard Oregon. Their perimeter guards make a lot of lot of moves. Um, they average what was it eight point nine steals a night, which for some reason is like. It's it's impressive, but on on the average, it's seventy fifth in the country, which is wild that there are seventy four more teams who average more than almost nine steals a night. Right. But you know, uh, they they hold their opponents to a really slow pace. They they themselves have the slow pace offensively. Um, 
this this will be a game where Oregon will need a lot of perimeter shooting um, and will need their guards to make an impact with their dribble drives more than anything else um, going into it. Um, Belmont, you know, they're they're a very solid shooting team, except from the free throw line. That's their only it's their only subpar category. Uh, three point shooting is right around thirty three percent. Uh, field goal percentage is right around uh, or two point percentage is right around fifty two percent. Um, this is a team that will hit shots. Ultimately, um, they'll have a large crowd base. If they get it going offensively, it's going to be something that's going to be tough for Oregon to to wave through. Um, so again, it comes down to shot making and, and perimeter defense for Oregon more than anything else. This a little bit of shades of Utah. Um, I was you know, and, and I always say that from a offensive sh- like shot composition. I was trying to figure out what what was similar here. Um, Belmont is twentieth nationally in three point shots made per game and I know they play a little slower pace but like almost 50% of their shots come from three-point range which is a little unique um, they take 25 a game Utah takes 26 a game Belmont makes it at 33% Utah makes it at 36% so um, these are these are comparable teams um, all five of Belmont starters shoot threes at a regular clip four of them have attempted more than 100 this season in 29 games so that's about four per game for four players um, none shooting better than 40%, but all shooting better than like 33%. So um, they will get the ball up the court and they will shoot threes. Um, I think if we want to get further into this a little bit, like it's really an interesting matchup of styles because Oregon is a much bigger team. Yeah, uh, bring that up. Yeah, I mean, I think and that stands out. You look at the roster for Belmont, its tallest player is 6'3". Oregon's got a couple of players they play regularly that are 6'5", 6'7", 6'8". You know, they, Oregon has a bigger team and – Belmont's backcourt, like they start three players that are five seven or shorter. Um, and as mm-hmm. Eric said, they are aggressive defensively. Um, 2D Jones, and I was I had to look it up. It's not Tutty because it looks like Tutty, but it's 2D. Um, Great name. Birth name Niara, by the way. So kind of an oh. two big Niaras playing in this Battle one. Battle of the Niaras. Um, but she goes by 2D. She averages about 2.8 steals per game, which was 15th nationally. Uh, she was the conference's player of the year. She's again one of those five seven, five six guards. Um, I like Oregon having three competent ball handlers in Pow Pow, Rogers, and Shear. Um, but she's going to get in on them, and she's going to try to force some steals and, and create some turnovers. They are one of the better teams nationally at forcing turnovers. Jared kind of got into the steal stat a second ago. Um, it'll be interesting to see how Oregon use you know faces that pressure. But like if you're Oregon, and I, we don't have to go like super mi- micro into this, like I think this has to be a game where Niara and Sedona, Oregon's Niara. And Sedona Prince mm-hmm. have some success because they are going to be going against players that are much shorter. And the reality is, is if Oregon goes double big, which they did in the Pac-12 tournament, um, and that means playing Niara and Sedona, you're going to have six three against six seven, and like six foot against six five Niara. Um, and like to me, you go high low all day with those two, and and just take advantage of that matchup. So, um, like, there's reasons to think Oregon could be in a really good spot if they're playing at their best, but. I'm also it's also like if, if Belmont has a day like Utah did in the Pac-12 tournament where they just get hot from three and they start knocking them down because there's a bunch of players mm-hmm. that are capable, this game could get away from Oregon. And Oregon has proven in the last couple of weeks not to be that great against three-point shooting teams. So um, I think this one's pretty interesting. If, if Oregon plays to its strengths, I like this game. If, if, they, if they don't and Utah – or sorry, Belmont plays to its, it could kind of get away maybe. My, my first thought when I was reading – kind of your preview stuff and looked at the rosters was this game reminds me a lot of the South Dakota game 
last year in the opening round of the, of the women's tournament. Um, Oregon was significantly bigger in that game as well. And they dominated the paint. They won 67 to 47. Um, it was a weird game where, you know, I, I think South Dakota made like just five, three pointers. Um, they had a lot of offensive rebounds, but they, they couldn't do anything in the paint and Oregon dominated scoring 36 points. They won the rebounding battle. This, this Eric, guys, tell me if I'm wrong. This feels similar. Like the game plan for Oregon should literally just, in my opinion, be, Hey, just go to Sobley, go to Prince and just destroy them down low and get them into foul trouble. Yeah, I, I, I mean, honestly, that would be my approach. Obviously, Oregon has some good perimeter players that they can take advantage of. Um, like, I mean, honestly, like you also, I, I think from a speed and quickness advantage, you're going to be neutralized a little bit with Rodgers on the perimeter. Um, Pow Pow has a little bit of height over these girls, but not much. So I, I don't know. Like, I think she can probably still be effective. But I'm with you that, like, I think Oregon should focus on that high-low and Sedona maybe at the elbow, Niara at the block. You can, you can invert that if you want, but – that's when they've been most successful. So I think Sedona's a little better passer, and Niara is probably a little better finishing around there. And and yeah, just play a little high, you know, play big ball, you know, use your giants there and, and take advantage of that. And be, I say that in part because I know that Belmont can spread you out and shoot the three, but their center, uh, Madison Bartley, is a very capable player. She is the least consistent and the least she shot the least attempts from three. So you you would be a little worried about them dragging Sedona out there and having her chase somebody. And that is something I am assuming that. Bart Brooks and Belmont will want to do is, is just kind of take advantage of the fact that Sedona's not very fleet of foot. She could get kind of maybe beaten up a little bit in those matchups. Um, but like on the other end, I don't think they really have an answer. And like literally their starting center is six, three, and they don't have anyone else on the roster as tall. So like if you were to get Bartley, who is another one of those all conference players in the Ohio Valley um, in foul trouble, you're probably in decent spot there in terms of like now you're going to get it could be six five against six foot or five eleven. Um, so yeah, and Oregon. If, if Oregon doesn't win in the paint, they're not going to win, and they should win in the paint by a pretty decisive margin if everything kind of goes their way. I mean, Niara Sabli will be a top ten, top eight WNBA draft pick. This is a game where she should show up against again, frankly, kind of overmatched, at least physically, um, opponent. Belmont has four players that are six one or taller. Oregon has nine. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the way that Oregon should attack this game is to go inside and use their height and use their depth in there. Uh, like Matt just mentioned, they have that many players who are over six foot one. Um, you know, Belmont's no pushover, though. And, and just in field goal defense, um, they hold opponents to under 40% from the field, 37.4. They hold opponents to under 40% from two point. They hold opponents to under 31% from three. Um, the size advantage is going to be huge for Oregon. It's going to be one thing to attack it in, in, like, in, in nature, and it's another thing to actually go forth and do it. So that's going to be the difficulty for Oregon is just getting in all of those entry passes to Sedona, to Niara, to Kylie Watson, whoever's playing the four or the five. Maybe it's Sydney Paris that they use as a post-up. Um, I, I mean, if that's probably what Oregon's going to do because it's just such a an glaring and obvious uh, advantage that they have, dumping the ball down low to Sabali or somebody. It's just they have to execute it well, and they've, they've had issues with that in the past. They've also had issues just with hitting shots in the paint. Um, and But another good thing for Oregon is that Belmont isn't the best of rebounding teams. They're 
probably league or they're probably pretty mediocre, just average in the in terms of all D one teams. So that's a positive for them. And especially with their height and size and athleticism, they should probably get a few more offensive rebounds than average. But this all comes down to execution, which you know could be an underlying narrative of this entire season is just execution. Um, so for Oregon, obviously getting inside and, and using the paint to their advantage is, is probably going to be the key thing. I would imagine that's what Kelly Graves is going after. Although we don't know, maybe they just line up and start hitting perimeter shots for once and then they win that way. However, um, if it were up to me, yeah, you you try to to bang down low with Sabali and Sedona um, for Bartley and her three point ability. I feel like you kind of should stagger the minutes with Sedona Prince, and when Bartley is on the court, take Sedona off, have Nayara or Kylie Watson, preferably Watson on the court when Bartley's out there, just to kind of chase her around the perimeter a little better, and whoever is the backup big for Belmont probably couldn't hold a candle to Sedona offensively. So that's going to be an advantage that Oregon's going to need to take advantage of and have Sedona hit some shots, hit some jumpers early and to get her going. Kelly has said he's not sure what he'll start. He could go double big or they could bring Maddie Shear back into lineup. We should know it sounds like Maddie's still kind of dealing with her ankle injury. She played a lot against Utah in the Pac-12 tournament. Um, one other thought I had on Belmont before we move on is just uh, they won their – conference championship game 51 to 29 which is pretty impressive in part because tennessee tech is a team that um who, who they beat in the conference championship had beaten them earlier in the year that was one of their two conference losses so to win by 22 points is really impressive i was trying to figure out if there were similarities between tennessee tech and oregon um and tennessee tech is really small too they're six foot three across the front line oregon is six seven six five so um like looking through the ohio valley conference there just aren't players this this size that they face. And again, you look at the fact that they struggled in non-league play against some power five teams that do have some size. Um, I think it's a positive matchup that way, especially if Oregon's able to really focus on that. Let's shift now to, to some Oregon focus and just the success. Um, what correlates that? Eric, you brought up some research before the show of just – why Oregon has success and when they don't, you, we can figure out kind of why they don't have success either from a player perspective. Yeah, I was trying to figure out offensively primarily here because defensively Oregon's actually been pretty good most nights, although it, it did bite them against Utah. And so we have to be kind of aware of if, if the Utah blueprint is in place, Belmont could have some success. We should also know Oregon did beat Utah in the two regular season matchups. So it's not like Utah had Oregon's number. Um, all three games were really competitive. Um, Utah took the third one um, in the Pac-12 tournament. You know, Oregon has a lot of success when – I think two things correlated looking at this. When Tahina Pow Pow is scoring 20 or more points and is the focal point of the offense, Oregon's 4-1. and one. Um, Those wins have come over some pretty darn good teams as well. They beat UConn with her scoring 24 and, and Arizona with her over 20. Um, and the one loss was against Stanford at home in a game where they were right in position to win up until the last couple minutes. Those kind of, I think that points to the fact that she needs to be effective offensively. Because if you go look at her splits and their losses, it's pretty, it's a huge step down. I mean, when she's not playing well, the team is not successful, um, especially offensively. And the shooting splits and losses, um, I know I had this earlier in the year. I didn't haven't updated the stats, but like she was shooting like 13% from three in five conference losses at one point. I mean, it was just like basically that was the correlation of like if she's not hitting her threes, they're going to lose. 
Um, and on the flip side of that same kind of narrative, when this player is hitting their threes, they win. That's Sydney Parrish. And she's taken, I think rightfully so, some flack for some inability to do other things on the court. But when she's hitting a three, Oregon is seven and one. And the only loss they've had is that same loss against Stanford at home, which again is against one of the top two teams in the country in a game that they were right in the heart of the whole way. That they probably, frankly, if a break goes here, a break goes there, they do win. Um, and, and, and if that's the case, we're talking about them not playing Belmont in their home and hosting games, but them's the breaks. So, like, to me, I think Tahina and Sydney offensively, if Tahina can score at a, at a high clip and be consistent, and if Sydney can hit the three ball, like, that, that's big for Oregon. Um, and then I also want to just, like, I tried to correlate when Rodgers and uh, Niara scored over 20. The team's just not been quite as consistently good. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean they should be focal points offensively. Um, Rogers over 20 points only happened three times this year, which is interesting because she averages 15 a game. Um, but they beat Washington on the road, but then they lost at Stanford and at Colorado. And neither of those games were very good showings for Oregon. Um, you know, and I think she was kind of forced into that spot. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying they can't win with her being the focal point, but it seems like they're better off when she's not. Um, and then Niara, they're four and two when she scores more than 20. Two losses, though, were, were, again, tough ones at Arizona State and at Colorado. Um, games where, again, I don't think the team played at their best. So, uh, to me, if, if for Oregon to be at its best right now, it's Tahina being the primary perimeter offensive threat, and it's get Sydney going. And I think it's imperative in these tournament games to get her involved early. Um, these are games, by the way, where, it, like, defensively, it could get pretty hairy having her out there. If you go double big and she's playing small forward, I mean, she's six, she's six foot one. That means she's going against girls like six inches shorter who are going to have a, a significant quickness advantage. So um, for her to really earn her minutes on the floor, she's got to be hitting the three. And when Oregon is at its best, she has. Yeah, that seven and one stat is just so not surprising about when Cindy <laughs> right. Parrish hits three or more threes. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've been saying it for, for weeks now, if not months, just how important her perimeter jump shot is to the significance and the health of Oregon's overall resume and roster. Um, they need her to hit shots. And in a game like against Belmont, she might not be the one to hit shots just because of the speed issue. Um, Parrish is, is good against undersized fours, can probably guard some threes, but in a case against Belmont where they run three guards who are five seven and under, or five or like all at five seven, yeah, that's going to be tough for her just in terms of foot speed. Um, she she can do her she can do her best, but it just might not be enough in this instance. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but Oregon actually has like the depth and the the perimeter defense on their bench to you know, kind of mix and match in these situations and try to keep up with Belmont. Um, you know, we'll see how much Maddie Shear plays. I'd imagine since it's the tournament, she plays a good bit, especially considering she played a good bit against Utah. Um, but if Maddie can hit a three or two, if Tahina and and um, India and Yara can actually stretch the floor, and if Sedona is hitting her mid-range jump shot, then that could alleviate the um, the potential of Sydney not playing at all. Not playing at all, but not playing as many minutes as she normally does. Um but, yeah, that's going to be it. I mean, we've been saying this for weeks now, honestly, about the, both the men's and the women's teams. Just the perimeter jump shooting is has been at points so abysmal. There's that one stretch at Matthew Knight Arena where they missed 10 million threes. Um, that's, 
that's just kind of how this season has gone. Um, but in the tournament, everything's, I don't know, I kind of look at it as a fresh slate for this team. Um, you know, now their ranking is fifth. They have, you know, maybe a little bit of chip on the shoulder for not getting a fourth seed, but then again, that comes from their own playing. So yep. that's a bit of an issue. Um, but however they want to look at it, um, this game against Belmont is an opportunity to continue those trends of, of trying to win and getting Tahina as their primary ball handler and scorer from the perimeter, getting Sydney going early, getting Niara established on the post early. Um, I just look for Oregon to come out of, of this break and into this game with some easy, easy sets to start it off. You know, just some pin actions for Niara or Sydney along the baseline, try to get them open for a 15-footer, a 25-footer, whatever the case may be, just high pick and rolls with Tahina and see how her quickness can kind of go against Belmont's guards. Um, and if you have something, just try to keep taking advantage of it, keep making it work. Um, and then, you know, just leave it up to Kelly if they need a terms of they need to figure out something else um, because he's a good offensive mind. And I, I don't feel like this team isn't going to put up points. There's always chess games within basketball. Um, the strategy of how, you know, if this happens, what do you do? And I think you guys kind of perfectly laid it out. The chess match with Kelly Graves of figuring out, okay, if you play big, you have to make that tough choice of mm-hmm. obviously we know the success of Sydney Parrish and when she shoots threes, but that more likely than likely than not takes off a Maddie Shear, who's by far your best defender on the floor. And Eric, you put it out there. How, you know, how prolific Belmont's guards are, how quick they are. Um, or if you keep Shear on the floor, you don't have Rogers or pop out. One of those two are off. Um, so I, I, I think that's going to be the the game within the game, if you will, uh, for Kelly Graves of managing the rotation and the times of those six players and figuring out, you know, how you keep your best lineup on the floor uh, throughout the game. Yeah, no, I I think that's pretty interesting. Um, it kind of feels like you play Sydney Parrish a little early. If she gets hot from three, you can you can keep playing her. But if you, she doesn't, you gotta have kind of a quick hook because again, I think the size advantage is beneficial. And to me, we haven't really talked about um, Belmont's leading scorer, Destiny Wells. She was 16 points per game this year, 18 points a game mm-hmm. a game a year ago. Um, scored 22 or 24, I think, in their conference championship game over Tennessee Tech. Like she can score. Um, and I imagine they want Maddie on her as much as possible to try to neutralize that. Um, but if Maddie's out there, you have to make a tough choice with Sydney if you're going to go double big. Um, and if you don't go, and maybe maybe honestly, you kind of go, we don't need to go double big because we'll just have one big in there and, and Niara can dominate down low or Sedona can dominate. I don't know. Um, these are the tough decisions because I do think you'd much rather have probably Sydney guarding an opposing four in this instance, who's about her size, as opposed to guarding Tootie Jones or Destiny Wells or... Um, I think I can't remember the last name on the third starting guard who's five seven. I don't know if you have that in front of you, Jared. It's like Chin or something. Um, Conley, Conley Chin, Conley Chin. Thank you. So like you you don't. I think if Sydney's guarding one of those three players, that's a matchup advantage for Belmont. And the only Mm -hmm. way it's really tenable is if she's just hitting threes, which she could. And and this is where we get to the, the bigger point though is with this Oregon team is they you know we're talking about kind of what they need to do to win now. Um, 
they need to hit some threes too. Like I, th- I don't think you can just rely on scoring in the paint because guess what? Trading threes and twos doesn't play out very well from you. Um, no. Of course, I don't expect Belmont to make its threes at the same clip as Oregon makes its twos because if that happens, Oregon's going to lose. Just like anybody would lose, that means Belmont's probably shooting forty to fifty percent. But I, I think if you're Oregon, you need someone to hit some perimeter shots, and it probably City Parish is the one you feel best about based upon when she's really hitting. The question is, if she's not, like I just think that she's kind of a it's a bit of a vulnerability there, and that's probably not totally fair to her because I know she provides other things, but this matchup doesn't feel tailor made for her strengths if she's playing the three. Yeah, it's an interesting idea you had about just going small and matching Belmont small for small. I could see Oregon starting out with that. I mean, that was their starting lineup for most of the year with the Sydney Parish at the four and then Sabley at the five or, you know, Sedona Prince at the five, whatever the case may be. Um, I do feel like if Oregon gets down kind of early, I feel like Kelly is going to go immediately to the double big if they don't already start with double big just to see what it'll do just to see if Belmont's going to change or if Oregon's going to have to change and go small for the entire game. Because if Oregon goes small for the entire game, then you're playing Belmont's game, and I don't think that's a good thing. I think if you're Kelly Graves, you want Belmont to try and keep up with whoever's at the four with Sydney Parrish. Um, uh, The the one thing I did realize from Belmont, um, (laughs) their center, Bartley, she only averages five rebounds a game, and that leads the team. This – this could be an opportunity for Sydney Parrish, even though she might be undersized for a four or she's, you know, just about normal, not normal, but you know what I'm saying? Just she's like average height. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just average height for a four. She could actually make an impact on the interior too, just because there's, it's, it's a lot of rebounding by committee for Belmont. They have uh, four players averaging four or more rebounds, um, this could be a game where Sydney could make an impact on the interior and grab offensive rebounds, um, which she's done as of late in the season. Um, she's been a lot more impactful on the boards in the last couple of games. So that's one area that I was thinking that could be an advantage for Oregon. But that also is obviously a huge, a huge and clear advantage if they go double bigs with Sedona and Niara or Kylie, maybe throw a Filipina Che in there for the last four minutes of the, of the half. Yeah. Um, that could be fun. Just – I don't know. There's a lot of ways this game could go, and and I don't know which one Kelly's going to come out of the break with. All right, let's take a quick break, and we come back. We'll discuss more just about Oregon and what happens if they win uh, and the season perspective uh, coming up next on the Austin Audible's podcast. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. Um We've got on our show notes, what does Oregon need to do to win this game? I feel like we've addressed yeah. uh, a lot of this topic pretty well, but do you guys mm-hmm. have anything else to add before we move on? I think they have to realize that it's a road environment too. Um, and Oregon has not played great on the road this year. I know that technically this is neutral site. and NCAA tournaments are, are neutral site. Well, Oregon's flying like 2,600 miles across the country. By the way, that's why I will not be there. It's a long way to go and flight, flight prices were extremely expensive. Um, and so that's just a aside, but for Belmont, they're in Nashville and that's like a two hour drive. I, I would imagine like a lot of Belmont fans will be there. And I will also imagine that a lot of the Tennessee fans will be there as well, rooting for Belmont, because I think they'd much rather probably face Belmont than Oregon if, if everybody's being honest. Um, so I, this is going to be 
not your trip, you know, you think in the men's tournament, like I'm actually going to go up and watch a couple of games in the Portland regional, like Boise State's playing. They'll have some fans. They're somewhat close by, but like, it's not next door. Like, you know, Gonzaga will be, Gonzaga will have probably travel well because they're the top seed, but like, they're not going to have their entire fan base there. Like, I think Belmont's going to try to pack that place and it's a huge arena. And so this is going to feel like a real road environment for Oregon. Um, and so that part can't be overlooked. Um, and again, like I think Jared made the point earlier, like if Belmont starts hitting some threes, Destiny Wells is starting to feel a little bit, and maybe Tootie Jones starts picking some pockets and finishing, the crowd could really get behind them. And that's why I actually think another key is just to start fast. Because I think if Belmont, you don't want to play behind just because that puts a lot of pressure. And not to be overly critical, like I don't think Oregon's played fantastic trailing games. I know they've had great fourth quarters and some success coming back, but like, I think this is a team that wants to play with a lead and they're certainly capable of that. And if you can play, if you can create a 10 to 12 point lead in the first half, suddenly the crowd probably isn't quite as into it. And Oregon maybe is able to pull away a little bit, but I, I do think that we have to note the kind of road atmosphere here. This is not like a, it's not like they're playing in Austin, Texas, where it's, you know, semi-neutral to both. And mm-hmm. this is like driving distance for one fan base and the other fan base. Again, it's, it's like, you're going to spend probably, you know, a thousand fifteen hundred dollars to fly down there. Right. Yeah, I think those are my two keys as well. Just realizing that this is a an away game, and the the, the Ducks need to start fast. I kind of think those two go hand in hand, honestly. Um, just eliminate the crowd noise at the start. You know, kind of how the how the men's game was on on Tuesday night. Um, they eliminated it, eliminated it at first, and then Utah State got going, and of course the crowd gets back into it, but. You know, to, yeah. to get down early is not ideal for this team. Uh, I agree with you, Eric. Obviously, they've had, you know, big fourth quarter moments like that win against Arizona. Um, that is not something you can count on. And if Oregon gets into that situation and you'll start hearing the broadcasters talk about, well, they came back from 15 down against Arizona with blank minutes left. That doesn't happen that often. There's a reason that they continuously talk about it. It's because it's a once in a 10 game thing. So for Oregon to get out early, to get that 9 to 10 to 12 point lead early, um, they can really slow down the game. They have the ultimate slowdown weapon in Niara Sabli on the low block, where you just give it to her. She takes a couple seconds. She's either going to get right to the rim and score, right to the rim and miss, try to get an offensive rebound, waste some more time, or get right to the rim and get fouled and go hit some free throws. So for Oregon to get up early, and attack fast and maybe hit some threes to start the game, just get into some really easy sets, really easy jump shots, open looks for somebody. I think that's really imperative to them in terms of ultimately winning this contest. Obviously, there's a lot more to the game than the first 10 minutes, but I think the first 10 minutes can be the most deciding and impactful of all the, of all the quarters in this round. All right, so going into the tournament, we often talk about how Dana Altman and the men's side is terrific in the month of March. I don't know how many Duck fans realize the women's team has made the Sweet 16 four straight years. That is phenomenal. Um, The history suggests that Oregon is going to be a factor in this tournament yet again. Um, They they have an opportunity to, to get there. Um, if they if they win against Belmont, that sets up a more than likely scenario where they play Tennessee. Um, 
just looking at, at, at this scenario now, what happens? Uh, how do we view this next matchup against Tennessee? Is this a, a case where we could see this game, this streak go to five straight years where they get to the tournament? Or is this one where they, it's a one and one? Hard. I mean, I think I think that's hard. And but by the way, I was looking at this earlier. Um, or Oregon as a program had four NCAA tournament wins before Kelly Graves has gotten here, and he has twelve in four <laughs> tournaments since he's been here. Um, so I mean, that sort of speaks to the shift. Oregon never made the Sweet Sixteen before he got here, and they've made it, as you said, four straight years, three Elite Eights, um, a Final Four. Um, Tennessee is kind of like Oregon in that they sort of limp to the finish line. And they limped for a different reason. It's because their best player, Jordan Horston's out. She like fractured her elbow, which um, I'm not a doctor. This happened like about three to four yeah. weeks ago. That doesn't seem super likely to be something that she's like full go for. And mm-hmm. again, they lost three of their last five. We should note all three losses came to, I think, three seeds or better in the NCAA tournament. And they lost to South Carolina, Kentucky. I think Mississippi State was the other. I might be wrong. And it was another, another big time team. Um, like this is a team that is not, was not playing its best light either. And their coach has sort of suggested it's really a coin flip of when she plays in this NCAA tournament. So if, if Oregon gets Tennessee without Horston, who by the way, is like a 20 and nine player and like going to be a, another probably top 10 draft pick, I, I think the ducks are in decent shape in a matchup. I, I also come back to the fact that like, it's such an advantage to play on your home court in NCAA tournament games. And, you know, Belmont will have a pseudo home court advantage. It'll be obviously better than a traditional neutral site. If it is Tennessee, that's an actual home court advantage. And that's one of the best home court advantages in all of college basketball. It's one of the most storied buildings in women's college basketball. And it's a place where Tennessee's got a lot of success. And like, if you're Oregon, Mm -hmm. maybe your best case here is is not even, you don't play Tennessee and, and you hope for Buffalo who supposedly is a pretty capable 13 seed to pull an upset there. And that sort of clears things for you um, to set up a, a trip to the sweet 16. But um, like, there are some reasons to be sort of optimistic about it, like making a sweet 16 again, but like I, you can't discount Tennessee who I know they did play great down the season, but there was a point in the year where you thought this was a team that was, you know, probably going to be a two seed um, and they slid a little bit late and, and Oregon now has to face a team like that potentially in their home gym. Um, that's not an ideal situation. And again, Oregon was not great in road games this year. Like go look at the teams. They go look at their wins on the road, aside from beating Washington state by 50. And I thought a pretty impressive road win at Oregon state, which doesn't look as impressive. Now it's not a real impressive, like away from Matthew Knight arena season. Like there's not a whole lot of wins that jump out to you. Um, just in like in totality, when you look at it. No, not at all. And you know, if, if Oregon gets by Belmont and they have a chance at Tennessee, yeah, it's it's all going to depend on Jordan Horston. Like she's probably Tennessee's best player. Yeah. Um, she's been out the last month. It there's no clear indicator on whether or not she'll be into play at some point during the tournament. I think that's obviously on purpose, just because if if she just you know suddenly appears from the rafters like you know Willis Reed then it could be a different story but we don't we don't know and you know Tennessee or Tennessee without her is certainly a tough test no matter what um, they're still a good team obviously they limped down the stretch because they're missing their best player but you know similar to how Oregon was without their two best players um, you know they still 
they still packed a punch. There were still opportunities for them to, to you know, um, get a win on the road or things like that. Um, it's not going to be easy no matter who they play, but it's really not going to be easy to get to the Sweet 16 if they play Tennessee, who will be at home. This is certainly not a, you know, a neutral site. Um, I think uh, Kelly Graves mentioned that on his last, you know, presser where he's like, all right, this is, this is it. Like we're, we should be done with these home court hostings for the first two rounds. And I don't I, I thought that was interesting. I agree. I don't know why they do it. I don't know why they do it in the NIT. I'm sure it's just to save money instead of renting out an entire arena. They just go and play. Yeah, exactly. Um, if, for those of you who are listening, Eric did the, the Johnny Manziel, the money thing. Um, but there you go. Now the two hands. Um, yeah, I, I, obviously it's just a money thing. Um, I do find it interesting that Kelly is saying this in like the one year he hasn't They're hosted. Not hosting. <laughs> yeah, well, he, so. he, he said this before. I've heard him say this every year. Okay. He's like, this is stupid. But anyway, yeah. I, I just, just yeah. yeah. I thought that that was interesting. But if he said this before, then I, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with him. It's all about saving the dollars. Um, yeah, this is it's going to be a tough test for Oregon if they have to go play Tennessee. I think they can pull it out. Um, you know, I still feel like they have probably you know like the second most talented team in the Pac-12 behind Stanford. Just from a roster perspective, they certainly don't play like it. Um, you know, the 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 opportunity for everything to just clicks is really 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 slim at this point during the year. It can still happen. I don't anticipate it to happen, but if Oregon gets hot one night from three. Um, you know they can ba- they can basically beat almost any team in the country, and that can happen at any given moment. You'd prefer it to happen for multiple games in a row, but I don't know if, if Oregon shoots forty six percent from three one game against Tennessee. You know there's a good chance that they go on and and move through through them and go to the Sweet Sixteen. If they do it again against Louisville, there's a good chance that that's a really close game that Oregon could be pulling away. Um, so I, I don't know. If I if I could put an odd on it, like a, a chance, a percentage, um, I'd probably give it a sixty-two percent chance that Oregon makes it on in the Sweet Sixteen. I think that's cautiously optimistic, but it all depends on Harston. If Harston plays, I'll drop that percentage really fast. But if she doesn't, then I think it stays around that point. Let's let's wrap this podcast up with uh, this question. Um, if Oregon truly is one and done in the NCAA tournament, which would be a surprise, it'd be a pretty shock to me. How do, how do we view this season? What's at stake for the prospects of this season when, when it's finally finished, whenever it comes to a close? This is probably a little doom and gloom, but it sort of feels like a bit of an end of an era of Oregon women's basketball dominance. I mean, and, and, and I'm not, that's probably a little hyperbolic because I still think they can come back next year and be really good because almost everybody returns besides Niara Sabali and they bring in a couple of five stars and a couple other big time recruits. But we've become accustomed to this being a team that plays deep into the tournament. And we were become accustomed to this being a team that really contends for conference championships. Well, they didn't. I know they finished second in the Pac-12 this year, but they were six games behind Stanford. That was, I mean, Stanford had basically sealed the conference championship in like by the end of February. You know, mid-February. So that part is kind of slipping away. And Stanford is going to continue to have a really good team. And so if I'm Oregon, I want to make a deep run here to kind of prove that the West Coast is not just – it's not just a Stanford. That Stanford's not the big team in the conference and then it's a bunch of also fans. Um, I think one and done would suggest that 
Oregon is falling away again. You know, I mean, I, I thought the games with Stanford this year were competitive in the head-to-head, and frankly, they were pretty competitive a year ago um, in 2020, which, again, was not a good season for Oregon. But if Oregon has a quick tournament out, you know, exit and they get knocked out right away, that that's pretty disappointing. Um, it was a year where they started the season, preseason top 10. And if you can't even get to the second couple of games to the Sweet 16, like that's, that's got to be viewed as a disappointment. And that is somebody who's been really, I think I've been pretty defensive. I don't know defensive is right, but I've defended this team a lot this year because I still see the ceiling. Um, but as Jared said, like it just hasn't clicked. And if it doesn't click in this couple of games of the tournament, like it's just going to be a year you look back and go, man, this could have been and should have been probably a lot better than. Yeah, I think we can already look at this year in a general perspective and you'd just be like, oh, oh what what could have been year? Um, just because of the, out, the, the stuff that you outlined at the very beginning of your segment, Eric, just like how talented this roster is. How Oregon fans have been accustomed to, you know, competing for conference championships, for competing for getting into the second and third weekend in the NCAA tournament. Um, this may or may not be one of those years as well, but um, Oregon certainly has to put themselves in the position to have an easy first round matchup as they have in other years. So, mm-hmm. and Belmont is a very capable team. Um, so, if they were to lose round one, you know, yeah, it'd be disappointing. I think it's disappointing to almost every team who loses in round one, except, you know, when you go against Stanford and that's, you know, you got no chance basically, but for this Oregon team, it's a little different. Um, I think everybody will kind of look back at that, that December, January, early February run where they really, you know, won like nine of 10, nine of 11, um, where they really seemed to be clicking and then things just went south really fast. Um, I think people will look back at that point of like, well, that's when the team peaked and it was pretty cool while it lasted. But, you know, that's why you, you know, you, you never want to peak in December and January. That's the worst time to do it because you still have like another month and a half, two months left. And this team will need to click to make a deep run. Um, I do think that if Oregon does kind of click in this instance, where maybe in the last week or so, Kelly, Graves, and company have found something in their practices or on tape, whatever. I doubt it because it's this far late into the season, but stranger things have happened. If they can click and if they can make a deep tournament run, I think we all kind of forget about this year, at least the regular season, because that's that's what NCAA basketball is. You look at Oregon State, the men's team last year, when they make it to the Elite Eight, everybody forgets that they were bad in the regular season. They just move on. They just say, wow, what a great season. And if the women's team were to get to the Sweet 16 and, and you know potentially knock off Louisville, um, I think everybody kind of forgets about this regular season. They just look towards the, po- the postseason and the years and years in the coming. And Jer- Jer- we'll see, I don't know if that happens, but. I was going to say, it's exactly what happened a year ago, though. They, they yeah. were terrible in the regular season, made the Sweet 16, and we're grouping it in like it was part of this great run. So if Oregon makes right. a Sweet 16 again, I think a lot of us go like, yeah, it was another pretty good year. But in reality, it's like you know, kind of a crappy month of February and not that great to start of March. So, Yeah. And if they I make the think- Elite Eight, you just give Kelly Graves a 15-year contract. That's all. <laughs> I don't think any of us are are, are thinking that if, if they lose, that the program 
is trending backwards and we're looking negatively at Kelly Graves. But I think Eric put it put it well that this is kind of a turning point for this program where it, it felt like for a couple of seasons the program every year was improving and getting better and was continuing its arc up. Um, and maybe now if, if it's a one and done scenario, maybe that's plateaued for a little bit and you can break through plateaus, it, no doubt about it. Um, but like you guys have said, it could also lead to uh, some descending you know, trajectories for, for a program as well. If you stay there long enough. Um, so this is a big game. Uh, we're going to have full coverage of it on DuckTerritory.com. Make sure to, Check it out, uh, Eric and Jared's work uh, leading up to and after uh, that first opening round game against Belmont, and we'll see what happens after that. Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.